Psalm 40, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but literally you have dug open my ears. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance, literally righteousness, in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Yahweh. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is Yahweh. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Well, if you could tiptoe right up to the empty tomb, put your ear right on the slabs of stone and listen through the broken grave, what would you hear coming from the other side? Or to put it another way, what does the new creation sound like? I haven't yet quite found it in me, I have to admit, to thank the Lord for coronavirus, but I'm grateful for at least one thing, and that it's that by taking me out of action for about 10 days, we've landed right on one of the great resurrection psalms, 
right on Easter Sunday. Today, in the words of one of the oldest hymns of the church, we praise the one who has overcome the sharpness of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And in Psalm 40, it's as if we tiptoe right up to those gates of his kingdom. Just imagine you've discovered a massive sealed stone tomb with a crack running down the middle. When you get close, you notice there's a strange, sweet breeze wafting through. The air smells of life, of wholesomeness, of beauty. You can hear birdsong and laughter coming from the other side. And one voice singing. Still only one voice, the firstborn of that new creation, our risen king. You can just make out the words. You wonder for a moment if you ought to be eavesdropping. But they do something so strange and beautiful to your heart that you can't pull yourself away from the sounds. I waited patiently for Yahweh, he sings. For psalm after psalm, I cried out to him, from the slimy pit of death and defilement and despair, as I bore the stain of sin, as I suffered under his hand, as I bit my tongue while mockers laughed and spat. Oh, I waited. And we know it, don't we? Because we've waited with him. We followed his prayers. I waited. And wonderfully, the Lord bent down in love to hear my cry. He drew me up out of that pit of destruction. He set my feet upon a rock, a new world, a solid world, one that will never, ever crumble. He put a new song in my mouth, the muzzle that's been strapped over my face for all these psalms. Now that is gone at last. And my hymn of praise to the goodness and grace of God will ring through this new world for all of time. And with every passing year, verse 3, that new song will grow louder and louder as billions come to see what God did for his king and learn to fear him and to trust him for themselves. And soul by soul, they join in my praise. And then with a shock, you realize that the singer knows you're there, standing just the other side of that broken grave. Not only does he know that you're listening into his song, but he's actually singing to you, for you, waiting for you to answer, to sing back to him. Once or twice in the Psalms, we've seen how David, God's king, self-consciously acts as the great worship leader of God's people, his Old Testament church. We saw it most clearly in that other great Psalm of the Cross, didn't we? Psalm 22. God's king is his worship leader. Look how dominant that theme is today, the sense of the one and the many. It's a prayer of one rescued king, one servant, who offers himself in obedience to the Father, verse 8, as the scriptures said he must as a perfect sacrifice for his people. But when God delights in the offering of that one man, then verse 3, it will have consequences for many. There's a great congregation, verse 9, which I, the king, am to lead, 
And that is the key to the psalm. As God's rescued Messiah sings, he expects to be joined by his people. He's standing on the other side of the cross, the other side of the tomb, risen, conquering, bursting with life. And yet his people are stuck here in this still dying world. For us, there are crosses ahead. For us, there are tombs still to come. For him, the resurrection is a now. For us, it's a not yet. And so the risen king sings this song for his still dying people to join. It's a call and response, a bit like the words that we often use to start our church services. First, we have his call in verses 1 to 10. He waited. He was delivered. He is full of joy and life. But then from verse 11, we've got the response of his earthly congregation. All of a sudden, we find ourselves waiting again, asking God to hurry all over again. And so as we gasp for life in this death-bound world, the Lord of life himself is calling us to look to his resurrection and trust in his God and join in his song of life and joy and praise. First then, let's press our ears right up to that broken grave and listen to his call from the other side. Verses 1 to 10 are the song of the risen king. And what we know is what it means now, don't we, to wait to sing. We know something of that. We've waited a long time. This is one of those examples of how reading the Psalms in the order that they've been put together and handed to us really does help because the cry of waiting there in in verse 1 seems to be the cry we've been listening to for the last three psalms. Waiting patiently for the Lord to do something seems like a bit of an understatement, really. The Hebrew way of saying that is rather more feverish. I waitingly waited. He's not that patient, really. And the truth is that wait has been excruciating, hasn't it? And yet David has battled so nobly to keep trusting his Lord even as he wallowed in this miry bog, as he stank of sin and all of its consequences, as every human voice he encountered told him that a man like him ought to be utterly forsaken. If you remember, for David, one of the most painful aspects of his suffering over the last two Psalms was the knowledge that he had brought this on his own head that the only one who could help him was the very God who must be angry with him. He's been under God's discipline, under God's judgment. In his case, either for his own sin or the sin he carried as the head of a people. In the case of the Lord Jesus, of course, who, like all of these Psalms, gives these words their fullest, richest meaning, that miry bog was entirely filled with the sins of other people sins he carried for his kingdom. And as he drowned in that filth, he, like David, looked utterly forsaken. And yet he waited. And the picture in verse 1 is so tender, isn't it? We don't really talk these days about people inclining anymore. I guess it's a bit of a legacy from the older 
translations, God reached down to him, stretched out towards his son and listened to his cry in love. And the king knows that it's as people see this supposedly forsaken son rejoice in God's grace again, verse 3, as he rejoices in God's rescue, that is when so many others will put their trust in him for themselves. The resurrection of the king is the great persuader. Often we try to spend all of our time persuading people that the resurrection is true, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't really something we need to prove. The resurrection of Jesus is God's proof to the world. It's proof of the gospel of a God who breaks sin and death, that that gospel is real. It's done, and we better believe it. It's something the Bible just announces to us as fact, or better still, it's something the Bible sings to us as praise. It takes this glorious Easter song, the song of a rescued king, and it puts it in our mouths to sing for ourselves. And I take verse 4 onwards as the words to that Easter song. Here is what the risen Lord Jesus is singing right now in his new creation. Blessed, happy, full of eternal joy is the man who trusts in Yahweh, the one who dies like I did with all his hope in the gospel God when it seems humanly like all is lost. Blessed is that person because actually, verse 4, this faithful God is the only hope that isn't a lie. So the song of the new creation is a song about this covenant God's wondrous deeds. That phrase, wondrous works or wondrous deeds, it's normally used of God's great saving acts in the Old Testament. It's the phrase he used to describe the Exodus. But in saving his king, God has multiplied those wondrous deeds beyond anything we've ever known. The resurrection of Jesus was the most wonderful thing that has ever been done because it wasn't just something he did for his Christ. God wasn't just thinking of his son when he bent down towards his cry. No, look what else he multiplied. In saving Jesus, God was multiplying his thoughts towards us. As God saved his king, he was multiplying his loving, tender concern towards millions upon millions of people, towards you. As he raised Jesus from the dead, he was writing a million individual Exodus stories. Wondrous deed after wondrous deed, each one written in love and in blood. And they are all so wonderful, verse 5, that... The king wants to sing to us about all of them. Tell us about all of them. But even though he has all of time left to sing this song, it will never be finished. It's more than can be told. You could go down to Cramond Beach this afternoon and start individually itemizing and cataloging every single grain of sand. And when you have finished that job they'll still only be getting to verse 1 of this song, 
in praise of God's wonderful deeds of grace and the loving concerns he has for his children. Those thoughts he displayed to the world through raising his king. First, he had to provide us with a king who could do what we could never do. So verse 6, we could never live lives that this righteous God would take delight in. We could sacrifice all the animals we could lay our hands on, but it wouldn't mean a thing if our hands and our hearts were full of sin. And so God has to provide a servant. It's the beginning of his wondrous deeds. Someone who can offer something true and perfect. And so he opened the ear of his king. It's language that comes from one of Isaiah's servant songs about one who would come in true obedience, who would delight with all of his heart in listening to God's will and gladly offering himself in obedience as a perfect sacrifice. And in a very limited way, that applies to David, the original singer. He was a king who loved God's law. He tried to rule as a true king to put his people first. But the letter to the Hebrews puts this psalm straight into the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. It quotes from the Greek version of verse 6, which understood those open ears as standing for much more. They stood for a whole body given over to doing God's will, for a whole life given in self-offering. So when Christ came into the world, says the New Testament, this is what he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. Here I am. I've come just as the scriptures said I must to offer myself. And so his song ends in verses 9 and 10 with this great triumphant declaration that God's servant has done his work. Do you see that? I've revealed your righteousness to the world. I've displayed it all as I suffered for sins and trusted you and as you raised me from the pit of death. I've not hidden anything of your faithfulness or your salvation or your steadfast love. And so now is the time for my great earthly congregation to sing that song with me, to rejoice in all of that love. Sing with me, join the greatest choir, the largest gathering of human beings this world will ever see. There's his call to worship. His song is a song of triumph, the song of the risen king. And so we press our ears to that broken gravestone and we can rejoice in those sounds of life and happiness coming from the other side. But it's not where we are, not yet. So what is our response? Well, verses 11 to 17 take us right back down to earth, don't they? The cry of his still dying people. For Jesus, where all of this finds its fullest and richest meaning, then that rescue from death was an ultimate rescue. There would only ever be one Calvary, one death for him. And now it is broken forever. But before this was his prayer, it was David's prayer. And after this was Jesus' prayer, it became our prayer. 
And we, like David, we go through life waiting and trusting God and experiencing wonderful moments of his love and his saving power and then finding that we need to wait for him all over again. He needs to pick us up out of the dust all over again. Here in this world, we will always need to wait again for God's rescue, right until the very last rescue, when he brings us to be with his son forever in that land full of life and song. And so do you see how the psalm is meant to work? We listen to the joy of our rescued, risen king, and that resurrection is meant to fill us with hope while we wait for it ourselves. The response to Jesus' call is written for those of us who still have to face the reality of our dying, frail, earthly bodies. We look at what God did for his king in verses 1 to 10, and we cry out with him, do it again, Lord, do it for me. But it's that praise over what God has done which fuels our cry. So much of the second half echoes what he sung in the first half. There's a parallel between the waiting that God rescued David from and the waiting that he's facing now all over again. There's a parallel between the death Jesus died and the deaths we still have to die. One gives us hope for the other. So just as back in Verse 9, the king didn't restrain his lips when he sang of God's goodness. So he knows that God won't restrain his mercy and his love and his faithfulness now. Verse 11. Or what about verse 12? Do you see the problem he's facing there? Evil surrounding him, his own sin overtaking him. Do you see how he describes that? They are beyond what I can number. The evils around me, the iniquity inside me, it's more than the hairs on my head. That you sometimes feel like that when you confront your own sinfulness. It's trying to wash away your own sin is futile, isn't it? It's as futile as trying to shave away your hairs. They start sprouting back before you've even finished. It never ends. But what else has this psalm just used that exact same language for? Well, it was verse 5, wasn't it? Something else was beyond numbering. God's wondrous deeds, his loving thoughts, those were something no man could ever number, no tongue could ever sing. Even when our hearts fail within us, verse 12, because of our never-exhausted sin... The point is that God has grace to match it. The wondrous deeds that he's done in raising his king, the grace he's given through him. And so we sing with him, hurry, Lord, to help me. There's urgency at the end, isn't there? Look at the last few verses. Do not delay, oh my God. I can't hold out much longer. Isn't a life full of sin exhausting? Sometimes we feel we can't hold out much longer. Isn't a life under God's discipline exhausting? Illness is exhausting. 
death itself is exhausting. If you've ever watched someone die, you'll know how true that is. It is the most exhausting thing we ever go through. The most self-absorbing process that we ever face. So it's okay if in our waiting we actually seem a bit impatient. David is. But that is when more than ever we need to sing with the risen one. We need to sing his song of trust and of worship. Vindicate me, Father, by shaming all those who scoffed and who laughed. And vindicate me, verse 16, by bringing joy to my still dying people. All those who seek you, put a song of praise in their mouth. Those people whose joy is to sing of your salvation, make their story my story. Make it the same. Here we are then. It's Easter Sunday. But the truth is we don't feel very victorious. Death still lies ahead of each one of us. And yet if we listen carefully, we can hear the song that we'll be singing for the rest of time. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. Our king is singing those words right now, bursting with joy down the centuries and through the grave, inviting us to join his congregation even while we wait. Well, a happy Easter, everyone. It is, isn't it? If that's our song. Let's bow our heads and give him thanks. Almighty God, were we to tell of all your wondrous deeds of love to us in Christ, we know that eternity itself would be too short. And yet all the hope and the joy of these dying, sin-wrecked bodies lies in praising you. We praise you for our servant king in whose offering for us you still delight. We praise you for the righteousness and faithfulness and loyal love you displayed in raising him to life and seating him forever at your right hand. And we ask you, Lord, by that same faithful love, would you make haste to help us, his dying people, and bring us to be with him forever and ever. Amen.